I want to invite you to have a seat. Again, as you uh, have already been welcomed. I want to do it again. I want to say welcome. It's good to see each and every one of you. Uh, it really is a joy of mine uh, to gather with the church on Sunday morning and to, uh, to hear a good sermon. And so it's my prayer that that would be the case, that you would hear a good sermon this morning. If you have your Bible, uh, turn to the book of Galatians. We'll be in Galatians this morning, particularly in chapter 5. As you do that, I want to give you a little bit of a history lesson there's a woman by the name of Harriet Tubman. She's perhaps one of the most well-known of all underground railroad conductors. She's a fascinating lady. During a 10-year span, listen to this. During a 10-year span, she made 19 trips into the South and escorted over 300 slaves to freedom. And as she once proudly pointed out to Frederick Douglass in all of her journeys, she never lost a single passenger. Think about that. She's an amazing woman. In 1820, she's born a slave here in Maryland, Dor Dorchester County. She lived a difficult life. In her whole life, she feared that she, along with the other slaves there on the plantation, would be separated from one another, that they'd be sold, families would be broken apart, even their lives would be lost, possibly traded to or sold to an even worse master than the one that they had. In 1849, she decided to run away. She had had enough. She was ready to go. And so she set out on, at, uh, on foot at night. She had some assistance from kind folks along the way. And eventually she made it to safety. She made it to safety. In the following year, get this. In the following year, she returned to Maryland and escorted her sister and her sister's two children to freedom. Within the year, the very year that she left. It's amazing. She made the dangerous trip back to the South soon after that to rescue her brother and two other men. Then on her third return, she went after her husband only to find that he had taken another wife. But undeterred, she, she found other slaves seeking freedom. And she escorted them back to the safety of the North. Moses, as she began to be affectionately referred to as, she returned again and again and again. And by 1856, her reward posters that were posted all over the place, were offering $40,000 as a reward for her to capture and for her return. She had made the perilous journey into slave country 19 times by 1860. 19 times. One particularly difficult time, she rescued her 70-year-old parents and brought them to safety. Well, how about the interaction that this heroine had with other leaders at the time. Frederick Douglass, speaking of her, said this, accepting John Brown of sacred memory, I know no one who has willingly encountered more peril and hardship to serve our enslaved people than this woman, Harriet Tubman. And John Brown also said of her that she was one of the bravest persons on this continent. She's a fascinating lady. What's that got to do with what we're talking about this morning? Well, here it is. Here's the transition into the text. It wasn't long before this freed woman would begin to use her freedom to serve others. It wasn't long before this freed woman would begin to use her very freedom to serve others. 
And so let's read together in Galatians chapter 5. I want to read verses 1 down to 15. And so if you want to follow along with me, that'd be great. If you have a copy of God's Word, I want to encourage you, even though it should be on the screen, to pull your copy out and to read uh, and to, to follow along with us. I think that'll be helpful for you. In Galatians chapter 5, starting in verse 1, it says this. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts, accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying this truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed, and I wish that those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love the Lord, or love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Let's pray. Father, again, we ask you in full dependence that you would bless the reading of your word. That we would understand it, that we would be gripped by it, and that we would utterly be changed by it. And we ask that these things be done in the name of Jesus. Amen. I want to give you this point. If you're taking notes, I encourage you to do that. It's going to be a long point to write in the margins of your Bible, but maybe you can fit it in there. This is the main point that I want to, want to get you to receive this morning, coming from this text, and it's this. The gospel frees us from serving ourselves, and simultaneously it compels us to service to God by way of service to others. The gospel frees us from serving ourselves, and simultaneously it compels us to service to God by way of service to others. Looking back at the text, look at verse number one. It says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. There was some temptation to return to the yoke of bondage, which is a reference to the law and as a means of salvation, the law being fulfilled in your life in an effort to gain salvation. And so in reality, it wasn't salvation at all. It was actually damnation. And Paul is pointing out to the Galatians that they've been regressing. They've been tempted. They've been led to regress back into the very thing that they've been rescued from. And on their heads is the curse of the law. That their sin is exposed and they're open before God and utterly damned. The Galatians, they had been introduced to the gospel which contained within it the law. Right? They recognized the law and it does have value. We looked at that just a few weeks ago. 
the law demonstrated to these Gentiles that they were in need of a mediator. And that mediator was Jesus. There's no other mediator. And so seeing their need and their inability to reconcile with God in and of themselves, they repented and they believed in Jesus. They trusted in Jesus. They rested in Jesus. And they received salvation from the curse of the law, which is death and hell and separation ultimately from God. And so Jesus had paid their penalty associated with the law and even fulfilled the law on their behalf. This is Christ's active and passive righteousness. They hadn't physically fulfilled the law in and of themselves. Jesus had done that. That work was complete, but now the Judaizers had infiltrated. They had come in and they had begun to, to, to teach something aside from the gospel, a different gospel, which is, as Paul says, not a gospel at all. It's not good news. And so these teachers were calling all Christian Gentiles, Jews and Gentiles alike, to submit to the law as a means of salvation. So for example, here in Galatians chapter 5, uh, Paul points out that they were teaching the need for circumcision. They were teaching that this physical act was necessary for salvation to demonstrate true submission and obedience and salvation. And so they were saying, in essence, Jesus is good. Jesus is going to get you pretty far. You're going to get pretty close. But you need to add to it. You need to add to it this particular action, this particular work. So Paul was leading them to reject that false doctrine because it undermined the truth. And as we've been saying, it was God belittling and it was cross-shrinking. To think that you could add anything to what Jesus has already done as if the bill has been paid and you're like, yeah, but I'm going to go ahead and add, I'm going to go ahead and add washing dishes because the bill that you've paid for me, it's not enough. I feel like I need to do something more. You're not good enough. Your payment is not enough, kind benefactor. I'm going to add to it. Paul is saying here, he's demonstrating for them that Jesus plus anything is nothing. It's of no value. It's not the gospel. He wants them to know that Jesus plus nothing is everything. Nothing can be added. Nothing needs to be added to the gospel. That's verse 1. Look at verse 2. Paul says, look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. This word accept, it's actually, I want to freak you out, it's actually not even in the Greek there. But it's this idea of becoming circumcised. It's the idea of changing your identity. And so in the English, it makes sense for us to say, accept the act of circumcision into your life. But it does bring this idea of looking to Christ and saying, there's not enough there. I need to accept something more. I need to become something more than I already am. This sounds just like pretending and performing. Accepting something in addition to Christ. Trusting in something in addition to Christ. This is idolatry. This is heart idolatry. We looked at that last week. But it's pretending and performing. It's, it's again, it's cross-shrinking and God-belittling. To accept circumcision. To become circumcised. Verse 3, we receive this warning. He says, I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. What he's saying here is there's two roads. The road of Christ and the road of the law. If you try to pursue righteousness, a 
apart from Christ and only through the law, that is a road diverged from Christ. That's a different road altogether. He's saying they've, they, they've, they've split off. And so to think that you can do both at the same time is your folly. You can't travel both the law and grace. You can't do that. Not by, not by means, not for salvation. If you rest in Christ, then you have to rest in Christ. Don't add to the gospel of Christ. Don't add to the gospel, the good news of Jesus. If you add circumcision or any other part of the law or anything outside of the law, you have to commit to that path. And what Paul is saying here, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in verse 3 is, if you start down that path, you, have, you are committed to that path. If you say, I'm going to keep the law in order to receive favor from God and salvation ultimately, then you have to follow that path to the end. That's so scary. There's a warning there. You can't do both. You can't have a foot in both camps. Again, the paths diverge. And that unconnected nature of these two paths, it's vividly stated again in verse 4. Look at verse 4. It says, you are severed from Christ. Severed, cut off, separated, alienated. You, would, you, you, would, who, you who would be justified by the law, it's not going to happen. You're, you're obligated to keep the whole law. And so you, you're, sep, you're severed from Christ because you're trying to keep the whole law. And then he says at the end of verse 4, you have fallen away from grace. How scary to have that said of you. You're severed from Christ, you're separated from Christ, and you've fallen from grace. The grace that you thought you had the grace that you thought that you were living in and swimming in, you don't have anymore. You've been separated from that. So to be severed from Christ is to have fallen from grace. All of those things are being said about those who would keep the whole law. They're obligated to keep the whole law. This picture that Paul is painting is staggering. It's scary. Look at verse 5. This is so good. It says, For through the Spirit by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. I hope that you can get this. Follow with me. Look at verse 5. It says, We ourselves eagerly await for the hope of righteousness. Everyone, everyone, saved and unsaved, walking with Christ and not walking with Christ, they are eager for righteousness. Every single one. Everybody's eager for that. Everybody wants that. Everybody is chomping at the bit to get that, to have that set of them, right? To be on the right side of history. To be accepted. For your life to be validated. For people to love you. For you to truly be known. And people say, I still like you. I still accept you. We all want that. That's righteousness. We all eagerly await that. Every single one of us. From the youngest to the oldest, that's what we want. There's a separation here. There's a group of people that are eagerly longing for righteousness, but how do they go about doing it? Well, at the very beginning, it says, for through the Spirit, by faith, we. Through the Spirit, by faith, we are eagerly waiting. The we is speaking of Christians. The Spirit is working faith into their hearts. Everyone's eager for it, but those who are led by the Spirit... They have faith that they will receive it. And here's why. Look, it says, eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. 
It says, those who are in Christ, those who are in Christ through the Spirit that have been elect, they've been regenerate, they have faith in their hearts, and what do they do now that they have faith? They wait. Everybody else, what do they do? They scramble. You have waiting and you have scrambling. Everybody's eager. Everybody wants it. But there are those who wait in faith and those who scramble. They're scrambling for ways to become righteous. But those who wait in faith recognize that their righteousness is not something that needs to be worked for. It's not even something that needs to be longed for. But in faith, we wait in expectation that our righteousness is ours in Christ before God. And so they wait. There's a hope of righteousness. There's no need to add to it. No need to scramble to supplement. They don't need communion, or I'm sorry, uh, 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 well, yeah, they don't need necessarily communion. They don't need church attendance. They don't need circumcision. They don't need anything else in, in addition to what Christ has already done for them. And so they're not scrambling. They're waiting. And that's the gospel-centered life. Again, we talk about this every week. We're going to talk about it again. Hopefully it's on the screen. What's the gospel? What's the hope? What's the good news? Well, it's that God saves sinners through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That every spiritual need that you have will be met in Christ because of his death, his life, his death, and his resurrection. That's the gospel. And what's the gospel-centered life? Again, at the risk of you running me out of here, it's the continual rediscovery of these truths that God is more holy than you can imagine, that you are more sinful than you realize, and that the cross spans the gap because it is more powerful than you know. This is the gospel-centered life. This is the hope that we have. We wait. We don't scramble. We wait. Eagerly wanting righteousness, but we wait because we know that we have it. And it's in Christ. Look at verse 6. It says, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Circumcision, does it count for anything? No. What about uncircumcision? Oh, I'm not circumcised, and you are. Ha, you went, you, went the, you went that route and you didn't. Now that I'm not, that's added too. Well, no, neither the fact that you are or aren't, it adds for anything. But what does? What does? Does anything count in Christ? Does anything matter in Christ? Yes. Only what? Faith. Look at verse 6. Only faith. Now, what does it say of faith? Faith that's working through love, but only faith. Performing and pretending, what will they get you? What will adding to Christ's work on the cross, what will that, what will that get you? Nothing. Now, it will separate you from Christ. It will demonstrate, rather, your separation from Christ. And you're not understanding grace to think that coming to church, joining the church, or doing any other good work will somehow add to your salvation and secure for you something more that you haven't already received in Christ if you are, in fact, a Christian, is wrong. And so, what does count? This is last week's sermon. At the risk of frustrating you, I'll preach it again if you wish. What was the work that Christ has called us to do? Believe. This is our work. Faith. 
This is our job. We believe what he said. The word matters here. And what do we say? Well, we say in faith that this is true and I'll live my life by it. So faith working through love. Nothing, nothing counts for anything except for faith. Last week I gave you this definition of belief or faith was holding something as true and resting in it. Holding something as true and then resting in it. So verse 6, only faith. Only holding something as true and resting in it. I want you to, I want to unpack that verse this morning, the, the end of verse 6, and it's so important. Faith working through love. I want you to notice this. Notice the order. It's not you working through faith and love. It doesn't say that. It says faith working through love. And so it's not you drumming up faith and at the same time drumming up love. It's faith in your heart that comes from God, comes from the Spirit of God, as we saw in verse 5. And as it works in your heart, what does it do? Well, it works out love. And so when God's grace comes to us and we begin to see the gospel, we see his holiness, and we see our sinfulness, and we see Jesus' power to save, something begins to change in us. And it's like the crank on a wind-up toy. Do you guys remember the wind-up toys? For those of you that are my age and younger, you remember the cheaper ones that had the little plastic knob with the, the little gritty gear on the outside and you could wind those up and it sounded like it was lightweight and plastic and sounded a bit hollow and, and chintzy. But still yet, it, it demonstrates the, the proper illustration of what I'm going for this morning, what I see in this text. For those of you who are older, maybe you've seen in antique stores or you've seen even on cartoons, you see those, those larger ones that had a, a crank on the side with a, a butterfly handle that you could turn. Sometimes the key would he, could even be removed and you could put it into the side there and you could crank it up. What's happening in there? There's several things that are happening. First, you had this key. You had this crank on the side and it's an outside force applied to the internals of that little toy or that little machine. And as you crank it, what happens? The spring is being wound up. The, 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 the spring is being compressed by an outside force. And then what happens in turn is as that spring connected to a gear begins to turn, what happens to the feet? The feet begin to move. Why? Because they are directly connected to that spring that has been compressed. And so the outside crank is applying force. The internals are affected and are compressed. And as a direct result, the feet begin to move. This is, in a, in a way, what's taking place in this passage. This in, external force applied to the insides. When that crank or that gear is wound up or compressed, I should say, we begin to see an action. All this is happening internally, or all that is happening internally, I should say, is demonstrated by the way the feet begin to move. That's kind of how our hearts work. That's kind of how our hearts work. The grace of God 
begins to crank and change us. Where there was no life, where there was no activity, where there was no hope of movement or any momentum at all whatsoever, the grace of God came and it began to apply pressure. And as it did, something inside of that little toy heart began to change. As a direct result of that change that was deep down inside in the guts and the very being of that toy, the feet began to move and there began to be action and life seen on the outside. What happens when the crank is wound, when the spring is compressed? Nothing, right? Well, only in those toys that are broken. But in a properly functioning toy, the feet begin to move, right? Those internal gears, they're moved by the crank and they power the feet step by step, foot over foot, movement is seen. What's, what's happening on the inside? I want to break that down. When the grace of God comes to us, what begins to happen? Using that analogy and breaking it down even further, when that crank goes in and begins to turn, what happens? Well, the first thing that happens is you begin to see sin. The grace of God comes to you and that turns that crank a little bit. What do you do? Well, you begin to see sin. That wheel begins to turn. As we begin to see our sin, what do we do? Well, we repent of our sin. It's another crank. As it continues to turn, we not only repent, but we turn from our sin and we believe the gospel. We rest in Christ. This is what we've been talking about for so long now. We see that sin, the wheel turns, the crank turns. We begin to repent, the wheel turns a little bit. We turn from our sin and we believe the gospel, it turns a little bit more. And what do we do? Well, we begin to experience joy and freedom as this passage speaks about. And that cycle just continually repeats and repeats internally in the life of a Christian as grace, the force of God is applied in your life. So we've talked about that for a while now. But the point of today is to make the connection between that gear inside of you that's turning, that sees sin, that repents and believes the gospel, finds joy and repeats the process. Something inside of you, that's been happening. You're a Christian this morning, perhaps. That's what's happening in your life. And the gospel-centered life is that life continuing to turn. The grace of God continuing to apply force and that wheel inside, that, that gear just continuing to turn. You see sin, you repent from sin, you believe the gospel, you experience joy, and you do it all over again. Remember, This is the life of a Christian, repentance and faith. As we receive Christ, we walk in Christ. We live and operate in Christ. But that's what's taking place internally. But simultaneously, something on the outside should be happening. As that inner gear is working and turning, the outer gear is moving as well. The feet should be moving. There should be a connection. And that's what we want to talk about this morning. You see, there's a danger in the, in the church. There's a danger in your life. Listen, this is a warning. There's a danger that your life be about, that your gospel experience be about your experience, that it be about your transformation, that it be about your growth, and it not be about what God is doing in and through you. And there's a warning for you this morning. If you say the inner gear is working, but the outer feet aren't working, I, I don't necessarily believe that the grace has been applied. And that's scary, but it's true. When faith is in our hearts, it works itself out. Now, 
That's not how we're saved. We're not saved because of the work that we do. We're not saved because our feet begin to move as some wind-up toy. But when the, when the feet begin to move, connected with a heart that has been changed, it's indicative of the grace that has been applied to your heart. And so on the outside, we see our sin, we repent of the sin, we experience joy, and then we repeat that cycle. That's the gospel-centered life, internally speaking. But the gospel-centered life, what does it look like on the outside? As these two gears connect, what does it look like on the outside? Well, it looks like this. One, we see, again, this opportunity to love and to serve. We see an opportunity to love and to serve. Next, we die to self and we step out in faith in an effort to, to, to meet that need. We begin to experience then joy even more to the full and we repeat that cycle. And so as the grace of God through the gospel is applied in your heart and it winds up, what happens? Well, you in, internally you see sin, you repent of the sin, you believe the gospel, you experience joy and you repeat. That gear is turning in the gospel-centered life internally. Externally, what do we see? Well, we see opportunity to love and to serve. We die to self. We step out in faith. We begin to experience even more and more joy and we repeat the cycle and ever widening increasingly. This is what it looks like to be a Christian. And so internally for the Christian, there's a real change taking place, something really shifting there, some compression taking place, freedom from sin, joy in Christ. But there's this real temptation again to just make it about you and to let it stop there and to keep it internal. But gospel renewal is so much bigger than your own private, personal reality. It was never meant to be just that. One of the reasons why community is so important, that we be a collective, and we talk about church membership, and we talk about community and knowing and being known, is because we looked at last week, when we, when we are trying to address the sin in our own lives, it's almost impossible for us to really address it and to get victory over it by ourselves. Why? Because we can't hold the mirror and pull out the, 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 the dagger or the knife or whatever it is. The, we can't stitch ourselves up altogether. We need to be in community. I love this quote. It's by Robert Thune. It, this is what it says. When God's grace is working on us and in us, it will also work itself out through us. When God's grace is working on us and in us, it will also work itself out through us. In other words, if the gospel is changing you on the inside, it will, to some degree, be evident on the outside as well. And so what does that look like in plain language? What can we point to and say, what does faith, Working through love actually look, at, look like. I want to give you three different areas. Three different areas. So if you're taking notes, you could write these down. The first is forgiveness. The first is forgiveness. Faith reminds me that my own sin has been forgiven. And so internally I'm being changed. I see the cross of Christ. I see my own sin and the holiness of God. And I see that the cross spans the gap. In other words, it, for, it provides a way for me to be forgiven, to be reconciled to God. And so when I think about that, that's what's happening internally. That's what's happened in my own life. But externally, what's happening? Well, it gives me the power then to realize that I should forgive those who have sinned against me just as God has done for me. This is Ephesians chapter 4. 
That we forgive those who sin against us. Why? Because we've been forgiven. This is a classic, easy, low-hanging fruit example of how that inner wheel is cranked and it's turning. And when that happens, what happens in the outside? Well, we begin to see our feet move toward forgiveness. We begin to see our feet move towards forgiveness. This is one of the reasons why with confidence Jesus can say, those who do not forgive will not be forgiven. Does that scare you? It should. Jesus is saying, listen, brother, sister, if you say that you've been forgiven, but your feet aren't moving internally, but your feet aren't moving toward forgiveness, it's a demonstration that something has not actually changed in your heart. Now, is there maintenance that needs to be had? Yes, of course. Are there issues and situations that we work through in community? Of course. But if you say, I can't forgive, Jesus is saying, well, you need to check your heart. Is it possible that you have never experienced forgiveness? You see, when that spring of forgiveness is compressed in your heart, when that grace force is applied, feet begin to move toward forgiveness. It's a natural reaction. It's a consequence. And so one way that we can say, hey, what does faith, working itself out in love, what does that look like in the life of a Christian? What looks like forgiveness? It looks like forgiveness. And by the way, as we work through these, you could be, in, my, in, in your mind, you could say, you know what? I'm going to write these three things down that Pastor Josh talks about, and then I'm going to, with all of my being, I'm going to chase them down. And I'm going to start with forgiveness. I'm going to forgive everybody. Listen, if you are that little yellow duck with the crank sticking out the side that hasn't had any force applied to it, that duck looks at its feet and says, I wish I could move my feet. I wish I could. And in some weird way, you might even be able to muster up some of that outward movement. You might even be able to muster up a little bit. You might even be able to give the appearance that you have a changed heart, that there is a work inside of you, but at the end of the day, you won't be able to keep it up. And so if you're looking at these three things that I'm about to give that say, hey, this is what faith working itself out in love and your life will look like, don't start at the feet. This is more of a diagnostic. This is more of an encouragement for you to say, yes, God has brought me to the place of forgiveness in certain instances, and he's still continuing to turn that crank inside and to change me to where my feet will continue to work that way. No, I won't be there today. I probably won't be there tomorrow, but I have hope because I've seen something changing within me, and those that I walk in community with see it as well. So use this as a diagnostic. First one, forgiveness. Second one is service. Second one is service. By the way, these are all overlapping and interrelated. You serve people by forgiving them. But similarly, we're going to talk about service just for a moment. We see that the whole life of Christ, the entire life of Christ, him coming to earth, the incarnation, the passion, the life, the death, the resurrection, what was it all for? What was all an act of service? Philippians chapter 1 makes this so clear for us. We see how for us, he poured out his life in obedience to God and in service to the church. He poured his life out. Why? For the church. For the, for the elect. For those who are in Christ. For those who would place their faith in him. And he looked at himself and he said, I am an infinitely more valuable being. Think about that. An infinitely more valuable being than anything ever created. And yet I will spend my life, my existence, I'll pour out my life for these beings who I say now has value. 
intrinsically, we don't have value. But because he's called us valuable, we do. So that momentum of us seeing through the gospel the life of Christ and the service to the church as he lays his life down and says, my desires, my will, I'm setting those to the side. And yet, I'll live my life for the church, for others. That momentum that we see in the gospel of Christ's service towards us It internally works itself out. uh, It works itself, and then externally in my life, as I begin to see others around me as worthy of my time, and worthy of me also laying my life down for them. Christ came to save sinners, to preach the gospel, to call people to repent, and to say, "My life will be laid down for the life of those around me." And when that is witnessed in our hearts, when that gospel grace begins to turn that wheel in our hearts, what happens? We, of service, we begin to serve others around us. Why? Because we see if Christ's life is worth the life of the church, then is not mine? The life that through his life he purchased? Of course it is. So we live a life of service. Why? Because we're changed by the gospel. And so that grace is applied. It turns that crank and the feet begin to move in service. This is not an exhaustive list by any means, but let me give you the third and final. Ways that we see faith working itself out through love. Evangelism. Again, connected with service. This is the greatest way that we can serve others and yet it is the greatest way that we demonstrate a disconnect between the internal working of grace and the external working of grace. Sadly, this is where we see the greatest disconnect. When we have faith in the gospel, when we find joy, when we find hope, that's truly found in our bosom, in our, in our deepest part of our being. We understand that those around us are in need of that same thing that we have received and yet we did not deserve. What do we begin to do? We begin to tell others about it. We begin to tell others about it. It's been said of evangelism that it's one beggar telling another beggar excitedly where to get bread. That's what the gospel is. That's what evangelism is. Look at this good bread that I've received, this meat that I've received. And as it comes into our our hearts, it gives us joy. And we say, we've got to let everybody know that not only is there free bread, but it is the best bread. And it is the only bread that will sustain. And so we go and we tell people that. This is what God's called us to. We do this so naturally in so many other things. When we find a good restaurant or something that we particularly enjoy, what do we do? Well, we say, this is excellent, and it's not enough for me to just say, hey, I love this, and I'm going to keep this to myself. What do we do naturally? We say, because I love those around me, and because I want to bring glory to this thing that is most excellent, I'm going to tell everybody that I know. This is evangelism. This is one beggar telling another beggar where to get bread. And it's evidence that something has changed. We look at somebody and we say, well, are you, how much of a kickback do you receive? Do you get an extra like, basket of chips and salsa because you 
because I came to, is there some kind of a sign-up sheet like you get a dollar off coupon or something there's no need for that there's no need to be motivated by that when we really know that this is the best thing and we've really enjoyed it we tell others and that's evidence enough that we've tasted and seen that it's good right if we begin to tell others about the thing that we're enjoying and has sustained us, it's demonstrating that there's a change in them. Something shifted, and I recognize that they know that this is true. So these are the three ways I'll quickly give you this morning. We can see faith working itself out in love in our own lives. By the way, you've, you've probably noticed that these works, the works that faith brings about in our lives, they can be painful, can be very 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 painful and if you didn't hear anything else I've said today I want to I want to give this to you there's somebody that needs to hear this there's pain that you'll experience in your life as you forgive somebody who's wronged you and you say pastor Josh yes I know that it's right that I've been forgiven of so much and so now I should forgive others of so much but it's painful and I would agree with you that is a that is a terrible thing for you to experience It really is. Just because the grace of God has been extended to you doesn't mean it's easy then to offer forgiveness to those who have harmed you, to those who have wronged you, even when they don't know it, even when they don't care. It's difficult. It's a painful experience. To serve those who don't deserve it, it's a painful thing. And to even lay down your life and say, I'm not going to be about me. I'm going to be about the gospel going forward to my neighbors, to my coworkers, to my family, to my friends, and to the other parts of the world. That's a difficult, painful thing to do. And it's called dying to self. And it's what Christ has done for us. It is the demonstration, the clearest demonstration of love, greater love, has no one than this, that a man lay down his life. No, you can't show me a, a more pure and perfect way to demonstrate that you've died to self and that you truly love someone. Young people and old people. When you think about marriage, when you think about joining your life with someone else's for the rest of your life, know this. Marriage is about dying to self. And it sounds glorious until the dying begins. (laughs) And it's painful. And it hurts. But we demonstrate love and we say, you know what? I am so angry that you've done that again. But I don't even care. This isn't about me. Or to say, you know what? I have to say something that's so painful and it hurts and it's even going to make my relationship with this person that I love even more difficult but because I love them I got to tell them because they need to know and so you begin to tell them it's painful but that's dying to self it's carrying a cross and it's a form of suffering and here's the point that I, I think some of you need to hear it is a privilege to suffer for Jesus in a manner like unto his suffering It is a privilege for you to be able to suffer in a way that Christ has, even just in a small way. It's a privilege. You say, "Well, I I don't feel it in the moment," but you need to know it. It's true that we could even, in a small way, be invited in to share Jesus' suffering, to forgive, to serve, 
to evangelize, that we could carry a cross that looks a little bit like his, to pour our lives out just a little bit of the way that he did, is such a privilege. You know the story, right? Maybe this has happened to you. You've shown up somewhere and you've seen that the person, some other person in the group that you're with is wearing the exact same thing that you're wearing. And you're thinking, I wish I could die right now. I've never thought that before, but that's not me. But I know some of you are probably like that, and that's okay. But you're thinking, I can't believe that that person looks like me. Maybe you're the type that you want to be the standout. You want to be the one that everybody thinks the most highly of or, or just the most eccentric or different. You know, Jesus has never acted like that. He's never been frustrated, not for one moment, that his children could look like him. It's an honor. As a father, I imagine it's true as a mother to see your, your children begin to emulate you in the most positive ways, and even the ones, even in the ways that don't matter. It's, it's not heavy. It's not discouraging. It's like, hey, that's pretty cool. And in that small way, Christ is like that. He doesn't just say, oh, by happenstance, by chance, they begin, they've begun to look a little bit like me. This is his idea, that you would be formed into the image of Christ, that you would suffer like he has suffered and have the privilege to do so. This is the joy that we have as Christians. Know this, that you are never more like Christ than when you suffer for him on behalf of others. You are never more like Christ than when we suffer for him on behalf of others. What a privilege that you've been invited into. And so the next time someone sins against you, yes, it's painful, but remember this, you have just been given a privilege to emulate Christ, to look and to talk and to sound and to smell just like the Son of God. And you've been given that power to do it as well. In the same way that we can serve others, it's not heavy for us to lay down our lives and to say, it's not about me anymore. It's about Jesus. And, so, and he's called me to love others, and so I'll do that. And the best way that I can serve others is by, is by evangelizing. And I can be a messenger. I can be an evangelist like my Lord and Savior. What a privilege that you can look like him and carry the briefcase and, and wear the small suit jacket and, and have your lunchbox packed just like dad. We could do that and emulate him. What a privilege. For many of you, you've wanted to walk the, the steps of Jesus, the paths of Jesus, the very streets that he walked, and to see the stones that, 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 that his blood rested upon as he walked the, the Via Della Rosa. You want to be in that holy city. But I want to tell you something. If you're ever privileged with a chance to visit the holy city of Jerusalem and to walk the very steps that Jesus walked on the way to the cross, know this, that you will not see Jesus there. You will not see any blood. You won't see any suffering. He's not there. You'll see a, maybe a bit, sadly, something that's been commercialized in a, in a small way. But you know what? If you want to see the path that Jesus walked, if you want to see the path of suffering and of pain, you can still do it. You don't have to go to Jerusalem. You can walk down that path, that route. It began with Humility Road. It intersected with and turned on to Payne Avenue. This is the path that Jesus took. And then it went down Forgiveness Alley and then through Service Lane and onto Rejection Highway and Persecution Boulevard. This is the route that Jesus took. This is the, the route that has been referred to as the path of love, the path of self-denial. So if you want to follow in the footsteps of Jesus, don't go to Jerusalem. Go down the path of suffering. Go down the path of love and forgive 
and serve and evangelize. I referenced this a moment ago. If you start with the feet, the movement, and you try to keep that up, you won't be able to do it for much long, for much, for much time. But I want to encourage you to use the, this thing that we've talked about today in a diagnostic way. Consider your own heart and ask yourself, is, is grace really working in my heart? Because if it is, only then will your hands begin to follow suit. Only then will your feet begin to move. And just like the law, knowing that you should be doing something and you're not, it's not enough. To say, oh, I should be doing this or I should be doing that, it's not enough. It only brings condemnation. For instance, you may know that you should be sharing the good news of Jesus Christ with your neighbors, but you're not. Maybe that's you. And you try to get motivated, and by looking at the law, you don't find any motivation. But where do we get that movement in the feet? Well, we get the movement in the feet where we look inward. And that grace of God that we rest upon, and we see how it's changed us. And we see what it's done for us. And we really meditate on that. And we really think about that. And we give time to that. What begins to happen is our feet begin to move. And so don't meditate on the law. That's legalism. Don't meditate this week on the fact that you should be evangelizing. Meditate on the fact that God has evangelized you and that you have the gospel. Meditate on that. And how you are utterly unworthy of it and yet you've still received it. Meditate on that this week. Which, by the way, an aside, that may be part of your problem as a Christian. Do you ever have time to really think? Do you ever have time just to meditate on the truths of God and the grace that he's extended to you? That's a free one. But to really think this week about that gospel key, that grace being inserted into your side and, be, and cranking and thanking God and walking through the gospel-centered life and letting that propel you along to, to action, letting that faith that's in your heart that you've worked out and you've wrestled with and you've rested in the, the gospel, let that then give way to the movement in your feet. And so if you're not motivated to love if you're not motivated to forgive, to serve, and to evangelize, don't just try harder. No. Examine your own heart. And as we looked at last week, repent of sin. Is there something about the grace of God and the gospel that you're not believing, that you're not thinking about, that, that you've set to the side in some way? If it is, repent of it. It's so much easier to do this in community, by the way. Go back and listen to last week's sermon again. That would be so helpful. But determine if there's any unbelief or any, or any sin or anything against what the gospel teaches. Any foreign object that's got in between the gears, so to speak, as the gospel key has been cranked in your life. I want to end this morning in chapter 5, verse 13. It says, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity to serve the flesh, for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Hagerstown Church, you've been given the freedom. If you're in Christ, you've been given the freedom from sin, the freedom from the law. But don't make this about you. Don't make your salvation about your own experience and what God's doing in your life. Don't let it end there. Use your freedom as an opportunity to serve one another. 
as it relates to purpose, to joy, it's only found and fulfilled in the second great commandment, right? Jesus gave it to us. You're in Christ. The gospel has changed your life. You're oriented towards God with all your heart, soul, and being. You love him. The second commandment flows right out of that. It says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And so that's the challenge for you today, to ask yourself, are you loving your neighbor as yourself? Only there will you find true purpose and joy. Only there. We serve our families, our neighborhoods, our coworkers, our friends with our lives in a manner that's consistent with the gospel. That's when we find joy. And that's using the freedom the way that we were designed to use it. And so as you come across that border into the land of the free, don't rest there long. Recognize that you have been set free, but you've not been set free to enjoy it for yourself. And so go back. Go back into the land of the slaves and bring others with you. The gospel frees us from serving ourselves and simultaneously it compels us to service to God by way of service to others. Let's pray. Father, what a privilege that you have given to us that we could emulate the very Son of God by living a life of service to others and in that, a life of obedience to you. Father, this is only a life that we can live, that we can obey through what you have done in our hearts. And so reorient our minds and help us to meditate this morning on that grace that by no work of our own, the gap between your holiness and our sinfulness can be spanned by the cross. Would you give us the faith to believe that? Would we turn from our sins and believe this truth? And would we find joy? And would we use our freedom to live on mission? and to be sent. We ask that these things be done in the name of Jesus and for his glory alone. Amen.